Open with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. As we finish up the Sermon on the Mount, that's Matthew 7, 13 to 29. Let's stand together for the reading of God's holy, authoritative Word. Hear the Word of God to you this morning. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes? Or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and errant word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives. This morning you may be seated. Sometimes during the week I get asked this question. If someone missed Sunday or missed the sermon, they'll say, How was the sermon? Was it ripping? And as I ponder their question, I begin to formulate a response, and I think to myself, hmm, how would a preacher, you know, determine whether it's ripping? So I think, is the sermon coherent? You know, is it understandable? That would be the first step. Is it true to the text and the context? True preacher thinks like that. Do I have interesting, life-engaging illustrations to each point that I make? Does that have a great balance of both the good news of the gospel, sound in that note, and also challenging exhortation? And of course, can it be boiled down to one simple sentence so that it can be driven home to the hearts and the minds of my hearers? That's what I think when I think of a ripping sermon. But for others, a ripping sermon is one that gets in people's faces and points out all their inconsistencies, all their flaws and all their sins, and tells them to knock it off, stop the nonsense, and start doing the right thing. Right? You know what I'm talking about? But other people judge a sermon on whether, whether or not it's focused on grace, 
and whether or not it leaves you feeling encouraged, upbeat, and free from guilt when it's over. They want to be lifted up. I remember somebody telling me, I'm not going to the church unless it's all about grace. And I feel that's what they meant. Then there are those, I'm not done yet, then there are those who judge a sermon on how insightful the message is and how eloquently these new insights are presented. There's something to be said about each of the way, these ways I just mentioned of critiquing a sermon. A good sermon has to be thoroughly biblical in content. It has to be Christ-centered in focus. It has to have a logical, flowing structure and contain vivid illustrations um, concrete examples of how it can be applied by God's people. All, that, all that's true. But here's what I find interesting as I look at the Sermon on the Mount. This sermon preached over 2,000 years ago. Has been, it's been said about this sermon that it's the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher that ever lived. And I would say that's not um, exaggeration. But here's, here's the sticking point. The truth is, according to our Lord's own words here in the sermon, no matter how eloquently presented, no matter how well delivered, no matter how ripping, even the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived will profit you nothing unless you put it into practice. Isn't that interesting? That is, unless you take the truths that it contained in it to heart and actually flesh them out in your everyday life. As Jesus comes to the concluding remarks of His Sermon on the Mount, He isn't impressed with simply hearing an Amen preacher. And don't get me wrong, I like that. I like to hear that and I like to give them when I'm on the other side. But it ain't enough. He's not impressed with receiving an A-plus for sermon preparation and delivery by an officially recognized seminary uh, in his day. No, he presses his hearers to give the only response that matters, their wholehearted obedience to what they just heard. That's the success of a sermon, when the hearers walk away and do what it says. Now, these aren't my words, they're Jesus' words. And what we're going to see, very simply, we're looking at the big picture. I'm not going to be able to tear apart every sentence, but we will look at the big picture so we see the forest and we don't miss it for the trees. This is a very simple message Jesus has for us here in this room this morning. It's this. Jesus warns us that it's not those who merely hear His words and agree with them that will enter heaven, but only those who put it into practice. Listen to that. He's warning us that it's not those who merely hear His words and agree with them that will enter heaven, but only those who put them into practice. That's a clear sentence. And it comes from Jesus. Three things we're going to look at. First thing Jesus says, enter through the right gate. Second thing Jesus says, don't listen to the wrong prophets. You know, you got the wrong one, baby. And the third one, build your house on the right foundation. He's doing a lot of dichotomy here. The two roads... Two foundations, two type of prophets. There's a little pattern going on, isn't there? First thing Jesus says. You know, it's like, it's so simple, but I I think it's somebody said, um, it's not the parts of Scripture that I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. And I would say this passage is one of them that, wow, it gets mighty quiet in here. 
Let's take a look at the first one. Enter through the right gate. Jesus begins the conclusion of his sermon with these words. I'm going to read them again from verses 13 and 14. He says, Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Jesus makes it clear there's only two paths that you can go on in life. There are no other options. Right from the get-go, this is distasteful to Americans. We love choices. I mean, it's gotten so ridiculous. You ever go to a restaurant and it's like a book, the menu, you're like, seriously? I, I'm, there's too many. I'm going to be here for like, you know, two hours trying to figure out what I want. Well, that's the American way. It's all about choices. We want viable options. We want options in healthcare. We want kinds options in transportation. We want options in churches. You with me? But Jesus says, when it comes to our eternal destiny, we either enter through the small gate, joining the select few in the narrow road that leads to life, or we float through the wide gate, joining the crowd onto the broad road which leads to destruction. There are no other options. It's a simple menu. Now, it tells us very clearly in other places in Scripture, Jesus himself tells us, literally, the small gate, that narrow road, is Jesus himself. Make it simple for you. In John's Gospel, Jesus says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. And then you know the other famous thing he said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He's the gate. But see, His way is no easy way. Coming through Jesus clearly means, as we read throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount, it means persecution. Right? Rejoice when people mistreat you and persecute you because of my sake. Rejoice and be glad because great will be your reward in heaven. It's fraught with difficulties. We have to learn not to worry, but to worship. Something that's very hard for many of us. We have to learn not to serve money, but to serve God. And that's a difficult, it's another American issue, isn't it? Wall Street has trouble, we're all panicking. It's fraught with trials and hardships. It's certainly not easy to love your enemy. I mean, it's hard enough to love your friend and your family. And Jesus says, guess what? Step it up a notch. I want you to love those who hate you, those who persecute you. Entering onto the narrow road that leads to life through Jesus is certainly the road less traveled. Remember when you were a kid? I remember when I was a kid and I said, but, but Johnny's mom lets him. Remember that? And you know what your parents, at least my parents would say, I don't care what Johnny's mom lets him do. You're not Johnny and I ain't his mom. You're not going. Yes, there are plenty of people that are allowed to do things and do things that are not the way of the cross. But we don't have to worry about them. We have a loving, kind Father who knows what's best for us through Jesus. And we are to walk that way, which will look very weird. It will look very odd to the rest of the world. Why aren't you joining us? G.K. Chesterton once put it this way, and it's always stuck with me throughout the years. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. 
it has been found difficult and left untried. That's powerful, isn't it? I've heard people say when they were in tough times and I'd say, well, you know, have you tried going to Jesus? I tried that. No, you didn't try that. (laughs) Not really. See, because here's the issue. In order to enter through the narrow gate and to go on the narrow road, guess what you have to do? You have to leave it all behind. You have to leave behind your pet sins. But you also have to leave behind something else, your self-righteousness. Remember, Jesus said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, I tell you by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. These were the ultra-conservatives. That's right. Problem with them, it was all about them. They didn't think they needed mercy. So you have to leave your pride. You have to leave your sins. And you have to leave your own self-righteousness. Now, here's the, here's the interesting thing. To enter through the wide gate, to walk down the broad road that leads to destruction, let me tell you what you have to do. Now listen up, it's very complicated. Nothing. Nothing. Just go with the flow. Let your sinful nature take you wherever naturally you want to go and just follow the crowd, the world, where they're headed. It's a big, wide stream. Jesus says, you'll have plenty of company on your way. You won't have to worry about that. But here's the problem. Like those glossy cigarette ads and the alcohol ads, they only show you the pleasurable part of it, don't they? They show you us all, you know, it doesn't get better than this. You know, not that I'm, you know, drinking in moderation is not a problem. And I'm not necessarily saying that smoking is sinful. But obviously, when you do it in excess, what I'm trying to tell you is they don't, when they do the advertisement, they don't go in the hospital and show the guy who's on oxygen and can barely breathe. And they don't take a little trip through his arteries. You with me? They don't go and show you somebody's liver who has cirrhosis from the many years of abusing it. And it's the same thing with any sin. That's just, I'm using that as an analogy, is that it's beautiful and pretty and fun and pleasurable at first, but it has a bitter harvest. And that's what Jesus is telling us. The broad road leads to destruction. One day, just the other day, somebody said this to me. And we'll go to our next point. They said, well, I sure hope I don't see so-and-so in hell. I hope I don't mess up big and end up there. But here was the, right away, I thought of this. Here's the problem. They're assuming, (laughs) they're assuming that unless something huge, they do something completely radically evil, they're going to make it to heaven. It's no problem. What they don't see is unless some kind of radical person intervenes on your behalf because you're so sinful and wicked, you're going down. That's the problem for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. So it's just the opposite. What's interesting here is Jesus doesn't try to ease people into making a gradual commitment to discipleship, but instead right from the beginning says, enter through the narrow gate. I'm telling you right now. Because it's, the, the road is narrow that leads to life. And then he says this. And this should wake us up out of our spiritual slumber. Few there be that find it. Enter through the right gate, the one that leads to life through Jesus. Secondly, don't listen to the wrong prophets. Listen to the right prophets. 
See, one of the things that often makes it difficult for people to enter through the small gate and go down the narrow road is the problem is there are false prophets and false teachers who look like innocent sheep on the outside, but inside, Jesus says, they are ferocious wolves. So in other words, you have false prophets leading you down the wrong road in the name of the right road. Amen. So look at verses 15 real quick. We'll take a look at it again. Jesus says, watch out. For false prophets, they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. And we'll just stop there for, for now. Here's what makes it hard to tell false prophets from true prophets, at least initially, is that the false prophet will come to you in sheep's clothing. He's not going to come to you in satanic garb like the head priest of Satan. Those things are kind of silly. We all kind of know what they're doing. You know, killing chickens or whatever they do. That's not the way he's going to come. You know? You know. It's like, oh, scary. The false prophet comes holy and righteous. And I'll tell you what a false prophet often does. A false prophet will use evangelical terminology. In other words, look like a Bible believer. Look like what we would uh, term, many people term, born again believer. Look like someone who believes you need to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior personally. Yeah, that's the way they look. Or else it wouldn't be, Jesus wouldn't have to say watch out, it would be real clear. J.C. McCauley puts it this way. He says, The wide gate and the broad road have their prophets, many of whom dress like prophets of the straight gate and the narrow way. We are warned by our Lord to exercise discernment in this matter, and it is neither easy nor popular. It's not easy because we have, we have to see beneath the sheep's clothing that hides the fanged wolf. It's not popular, for we are supposed to be broad enough to embrace anything that calls itself Christian. Yet it is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself who is warning us, and we neglect the warning at the peril of our souls. Listen, there are people that are overly critical. They look for one little wrong thing somebody says and they pounce on them. And, and we certainly want to stay away from that kind of a critical spirit. But I find that in America, our problem is much more the other way in most cases. We swallow everything called Christian. Oh, well, this is supposed to be Christian. So-and-so calls it a Christian. We need to have discernment. And how we have discernment is this. Jesus tells us how we could tell the false away from apart from the true prophets of God. He simply says this, by their fruit, you'll recognize them. Now here, here's the thing. Eventually, at the beginning you don't always see it, but eventually in time you'll see this. Does their teaching lead to holy, righteous, godly, upright living? Or does their teaching lead to loose, ungodly, sinful practices? You don't often see it at first, but it'll come out clear in time. Because basically, do you see the fruits of the Holy Spirit? What are the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Do you see love, biblical love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? Or do you see selfishness? We see many of that, a lot of that going on. You see impatience, immorality, unfaithfulness, and deception. Put it succinctly, is their teaching scriptural and is their living wholesome? It's two qualities that should be seen in increasing measure in all true spiritual leaders. Paul would later tell this to 
Pastor Timothy, listen, this is the word of God. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You hear what Paul is saying? Watch your life. You can't afford to have messy Christian living. People are looking at you. It's true with parents. It's especially true with spiritual leaders in the church. Get your act together. Come on, Timothy. You know what you've learned from me. Put it into practice. And it's also true, watch your doctrine. Make sure you're getting your messages from this book. And make sure you're being true, like I said earlier, to the text and the context. That you're not making up a pretext and making it say whatever you want it to say. Teach the word. Preach the gospel in season and out of season. And that means you've got to preach things like there's a narrow road. See, that's not popular anymore, is it? Not that it ever really was, but now it's even more increasingly unpopular. People will say, you can't grow a church big if you keep preaching like that, Pastor. Well, then guess what? Then I guess I'm growing a small church because I'm preaching the way Jesus tells me to preach. And by the way, that's a lie. A lot of big churches, by the grace of God, that preach the truth. J.I. Packer says this, Anyone who is in a position of spiritual leadership who fails to teach the more demanding, less comfortable, narrow gate, and rough road side of discipleship becomes a false prophet. Now Jesus makes the most terrifying comments that I believe I've ever read in Scripture. This is the scariest passage to me when I was first saved. It used to really frighten me, especially. Um, Because, you know, when you're brand new in the Lord, you tend to be very tender and sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And we should be all the time. And it's still terrifying when we take it to heart. He says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly. And here's the line that's scary. I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. If there's one sentence you never want to hear from Jesus, that's the one. Excuse me. The problem with the false teachers is not that they call Jesus Lord because he is Lord. No, their problem is that they pay lip service to him as Lord. They don't submit in their hearts, their minds, and their actions to him as Lord and obey his Father's will. Guess what? Sometimes we got to be, you know how they say, you need to broaden your mind. Sometimes we have to narrow our mind. In other words, we need to submit to God's revelation. We need to think God's thoughts after him. You remember what the deceiver did right from the get-go. The word of God was clear. Don't eat from the tree. What does the devil say? You remember? Hath God really said? Question. No, sometimes the narrow road, it's time to narrow our thinking. Some of these folks may have had miraculous gifts like prophesying, casting out demons, and performing miraculous signs. And that's one of the things uh, some of our even Bible-believing brethren get too caught up into the miraculous, too caught up in all that stuff. Whether you believe that's still in existence for today or not is not even the issue. The issue here, Jesus says, you can have all that and still go to hell. 
Let me be blunt. I am from Jersey. Because if you don't have the true graces that come with true conversion, such as holiness and godliness and humility and love, then all that stuff is nothing but a flash in the pan. It's all a big show. Welcome to the pony show. Such false professors, Jesus has a profession to make concerning them. And then the most chilling words, like I mentioned, that you could ever hear from his lips, depart from me, you evildoers, for I never knew you. Here's the issue. Those who are truly known by Jesus have true faith in him that displays itself in obedience to the Father. It's a biblical truth. If you have true saving faith, you will obey the Father. It's as simple as that. The faith that justifies also bears good fruit of obedience to God. The reformers used to say this, we are justified by faith alone, but not a faith that is alone. You get that? We are made, we are declared righteous by trusting in Jesus' work and that alone. But once we've truly trusted in Jesus' work, we will begin to do good works. That's what we were created for in Christ Jesus. Paul puts it this way in Romans 1.5, just in case we didn't get it. Through him, through Jesus, and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to what? To the obedience that comes from faith. You get that? Obedience. The faith that saves is the faith that obeys. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, some of you remember him. He put it this way, only he who believes obeys. And only he who obeys believes. Ultimate success in God's kingdom is not miraculous healings. It's not supernatural power over fallen angels or even prophesying in Christ's name. It's simple childlike obedience to God's will. Faithfulness and living for Jesus from day to day. I know when I was younger, I always wanted to do all these great things for the Lord. You ever had that? I want to go and be a missionary. I want to save a thousand. Now, it's like if I could be faithful day in and day out and keep walking with Jesus and keep loving, even though when I stumble, get, repent and get back up and keep going, that's success. That's success in God's kingdom. Real quick, and then we'll jump to our last point. 2 Timothy 2.19, Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands, stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are His. And everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. That encourages me. When I start falling or thinking about sinning, I hear those words. I'm like, you know what? I claim the name of the Lord. I must turn from this junk. What profit do I get from it anyway? I belong to Him. He knows me. We've got to choose the right gate, the narrow one. Listen to the right prophet, the one who bears the good fruits of obedience to God. And last of all, and very briefly, we have to choose to build our life on the right foundation. Last thing we're going to see in the text. Look at verse 24. Um, I won't read the whole thing. I'll read part of it. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And we read it earlier. You know the context. It's here that the rubber meets the road, Jesus says. It's the true moment of decision after this whole beautiful sermon he just preached. Here's the question Jesus is asking us, just like he asked his first hearers. How will you respond? Will you live the counter-cultural Christian life 
that I've outlined in my sermon? Or the life of the unbelieving worldly man? Will you trust in worship and worship the one true God of heaven and earth? Or will money be your master? Will you walk with me on the narrow road and rejoice even in being persecuted for my name's sake? Or will you shrug responsibility of following Jesus in order to fit in with the crowd and not have to face suffering? And so on. Will you love your neighbor? Will you love your enemy? Or will you be be bent on repaying evil for evil? You follow me? These are the things Jesus talked about. Will you keep the covenant that you made with the wife of your youth. These are things Jesus talks about. There was a TV news camera crew that was on assignment in southern Florida filming the widespread destruction of Hurricane Andrew a number of years back. In one scene amid the devastation and debris stood one house on its foundation. So you have all these houses flattened and there's one house that's still standing. Which says something in and of, you know, it's an eloquent sermon right there. The owner was cleaning up his yard when the <laughs> reporter approached. Can you imagine that odd scene? Everybody's level. He's kind of like sweeping his, you know. I think it's kind of funny. Well, it's not funny, but it's, you know what I mean. So the reporter asked, sir, why is your house the only one standing? How did you manage to escape the severe damage of the hurricane? And this is what he said. I built this house myself. I also built it according to the Florida State Building Code. When the code called for two-by-six roof trusses, I used two-by-six roof trusses. I was told that a house built according to the code would withstand a hurricane. I did, and it did. I suppose no one else around here followed that code. That's precisely what Jesus is saying through this closing illustration of the two builders. When life's trials come, and more importantly, when the ultimate storm of God's judgment comes, only those who heard Jesus' words and put them into practice will be standing. So what's the bottom line, excuse me, of this message? We go back to the simplicity, again, of Jesus' sermon. Trust and obey. Put your faith in Him alone, not what you could do to save yourself. And then out of gratitude and by faith, Do what he says. Put his words into practice. Don't worry. Worship. Don't serve money. Serve God. Don't rely on your own self-righteousness. Rely on his mercy alone. Forgive as you've been forgiven. Love your enemies. Otherwise, your life might look just like other lives who profess to know Jesus. But when the storms come, when the smoke clears, you won't be standing. When Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. We'll pick it up from there when I get back from Italy, Lord willing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words, these purifying words, these convicting words, and yet these very encouraging words. We thank you that you, when you preached this sermon, knew where you were going. 
in order to pay the penalty that our sins deserved. You are worthy, worthy, worthy of our following you. Lord Jesus, we pray for help. We pray for the power of your Spirit that we would not be just hearers only and thus be washed away by the flood when it comes, the storm, but that we would be doers as well, Lord, that we would take all your words to heart and in increasing measure put them into practice that we might be among the wise builders who build our houses on you, the rock. We pray it in your name, Jesus, and for your sake. And all God's people said, Amen. This Sunday sermon was preached by the Reverend Dr. Santo Garofolo. New City's Sunday sermon is recorded live on location at New City Fellowship of Atlantic City. If you're in the Atlantic City area, stop by. Our address is 215 North Sovereign Avenue, Atlantic City, New Jersey. Visit us online at newcityac.org. That's www.newcityac.org. Oh God is written and performed by the Reverend Dr. Sandra Garofolo. Join us next week for a brand new New Cities Sunday Sermon.